following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. Mark chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be continuing a series we're in called Favorite Texts. And uh, one of my favorite themes in the Bible is Jesus' authority and power over all things. You know, when I read about the very beginning pages of Scripture, God spoke and it happened. Out of nothing, God created. He said, let there be light, and there was. And then you continue this progression of God doing these things that are just amazing. I mean, you know, parting the Red Sea. It's one of my favorite stories. Moses is there praying at the Red Sea, and it's almost like God says to him, hey, enough praying, man. Stick the rod in the ground, and let's see what happens. And this Red Sea parts, and the people of God are delivered from the evil tyrants that are in Egypt. The story of obviously David, you know, delivering the people of Israel from Goliath and knowing that that was the power of God that helped him. And then you get to the New Testament and you see these stories and these miracles of Jesus that just amaze you. And you get to the end of the book and the book of Revelation where he is this king of kings, you know, riding on this white horse, delivering his people. I, I like winners anyway. And winning began with God. And I love the fact that Jesus is the king of all victory. He is the supreme being of all of all things. It, it stirs my heart to worship. And one of the things I love to do on earth the most is I love going to places that are bigger than me. I love going to the Crater Lake. I love going up there and seeing how amazingly big that place is and thinking how small I really am. I, we've, been to, we've been to the Grand Canyon twice. And every time I go there, I am amazed at how big that place is. It looks like a, a painting. You know, like you can reach out and touch it. Don't do that. It'd be bad for you. But it, it just, it's amazing when you stand next to it, how big it is. Or the Great Tetons, you know, the, these beautiful places, Half Dome in Yosemite, looking at these places and seeing this majestic thing rising above the earth. The Columbia River Gorge, you've been through there, driven through there. And if you've been through there during a windstorm, you know how terrifying that place is, right? There's a spot in the Black Hills that as you're driving along, the Black Hills do something really amazing. The Black Hills, you, you stop in this one spot on the highway, and it's as if the western mountainous ranges stop, and the Midwest plains pick up, and you can stop there and overlook all the plains. It is one of the most majestic places you could ever be. All those places make you feel remarkably small. And so when you combine those two things, Jesus' authority and power over all things, the huge and majestic places that he's created, and then you see stories in the Bible where Jesus commands the earth to do something and it does, it, ju it just stirs your heart. That's why it's one of my favorite things to talk about. And that's what we're going to see this morning in a story out of Mark chapter 4. So stand with me. We're going to read Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. <clears throat> and you'll see why this is stirring. Mark 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took 
him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they, they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Father, we read a text like this and our hearts are amazed that you have the power to stop seas and winds. Father, we need, we need enlightenment today. We need illumination today to see how this story fits into the grand narrative of what you're doing. Help us to, to see the glories of the risen Christ. Help us to marvel at the power and the wonder of God. And help us to connect this story to the grand purposes of God and not just our small purposes. And for that, Lord, we we really need your help. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. We seated. You know, I'm sure the story is familiar to you. If you've read your Bible at all, probably you've come across this at many times, and you probably do what most of us do. We get to a story like this, our eyes get really big, and you suddenly begin to think to yourself of all the storms that you have in your life and the places and the ways that Jesus is going to calm all those storms. But if you've lived long enough, and if you've had enough experiences in life, you will begin to ask a bigger question, which actually says this, what if he doesn't calm the storms? What do you do when fire once again ravages the same area that you live in? What do you do when the cancer stays? And while it's true that Jesus might calm the actual physical storms of your life, I think there's something a bit bigger happening in this story in Mark that Mark wants us to learn, and I think that God wants us to learn. And here's what I think it is. Now, let me, let me be honest with you. The outline you have in your bulletin is the completely wrong outline. It's from an outline about a month ago. So the copy and paste mechanism did not work this last week for some reason. So you're going to need to do some writing today in your notes. And there's enough room for you to do that. But here's the big idea of the sermon. It'll come up on the screen. It'll stay there so you can write it down. If you take pictures of the camera, you can do that too. Uh, if you don't know what a camera is on your phone... There's other issues we need to talk about. All right? Okay, so the big, the big idea is this, all right? Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth for the purpose of caring for his people and growing his kingdom. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth for the purpose of caring for his people and growing his kingdom. Now, we'll leave that on the screen for you to 
get that down while I continue here. The challenge with this storm story, if we're honest with ourselves, is we can get a bit myopic. We, we begin to look at our personal storms, believing that Jesus will calm them. And while that might be true, or it might not be true that he'll calm these, these storms, really the story is about the grand purposes of God. To care for his people in the midst of storms and to grow his kingdom. Now that's what I hope we're going to see today. And quite honestly, it's one of the reasons why it's my favorite, one of my favorite texts. I, I love stories that get me away from looking at me. This story is not primarily about how Jesus will calm your personal storms and you can live happily ever after. That's not what it's about. It is primarily about the grand purposes of God to accomplish something in this world and He's going to override and never be stopped by certain forces that this world might try and attempt to stop Him with. So my, my hope is... This text will lift your heart upward to God, away from your own myopic moment, and begin to glorify and worship God in a way like you never have. That's the, that's the hope. That's what preaching should do to you, right? We should get to the point of preaching at the end where we want to worship. So let's start with the first story, or the first point in our, in our, in our uh, sermon is the story of Mark. Mark is a fascinating gospel. It, is, it was written by a disciple of Peter, same as Mark. Shockingly, kind of, you know, creative. The Gospel of Mark, right? It's like the Gospel of Dave York, right? Wouldn't be very long. It's the shortest of the Gospels, and arguably, it is it is the first of the Gospels. There's some that believe that the, that Gospel, that Mark's Gospel, was utilized by Matthew and Luke to begin to narrate their Gospel. And it was written with very short, brief stories from the life of Jesus to give us a picture that Jesus is authentically the Son of God who came to Earth as a man. It's like a mosaic. Maybe you've seen mosaic tiles, how people take different color of tiles and they formulate this, this, this picture. And when you get done with the mosaic, it forms one picture. And that's what Mark is doing in the Gospel of Mark. He's taking short stories of Jesus' life. And when you get to the end of the book, you suddenly step back and realize, wait a minute, he has proven that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God who came as a man. Mark wrote the book to Roman Christians who were suffering under Nero during the first century. These Christians, during their great trials, needed to hear and understand that Jesus had come for them, that he was indeed God's son, as they were watching all around them, Christians being ravaged in every part of their city, in every part of their country. And Mark focuses on the, the humanness of Jesus. You'll notice things in this book, like about Jesus' hunger, or Jesus' anger, or Jesus' sorrow, or his amazement, or we'll see today, his fatigue. But Mark's gospel is also fast-paced. It's a funny gospel in the sense that 35 times in the first 14 chapters, Mark uses the word immediately. It seems like, it's not like a big word. But you're going to notice throughout the book this word immediately just popping up over and over again. In my digital Bible, I've just highlighted the word immediately throughout the book of Mark. So that every time it pops up, it reminds me, Mark is getting somewhere. And it's really fascinating because in Mark 1 through 14, he uses it 35 times. The very last verse of Mark, chapter verse 72, he uses it in that very last verse. Chapter 15, verse 1 begins the scene where Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. 
It says, Mark says, let's hurry up and get somewhere because I want to tell you what Jesus is and why he came. And he came to give his life as a ransom for his people. And when he gets to chapter 15, he never uses the word immediately again. And he slows the entire story down. It's for purpose of getting us somewhere. His gospel was written to tell us that Jesus is authentically the son of God who came as our savior and our king. Now, since we're in chapter four, let's just kind of realize where we're at in the book. In chapter one, you would have read about his Jesus's baptism, about his preaching, about the beginning of his ministry. You would have seen these very short snippets. You would have read about him healing people and teaching about God's kingdom all in chapter one. In chapter 2, you would have seen Jesus prove that he is indeed the Son of God by healing a paralytic and telling him that his sins were forgiven. And he does something really fascinating in this story. He tells him that his sins were forgiven. Everybody around gets angry at him, and he says, Hey, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he tells a paralytic to get up and walk, and he does. And then in chapter 3, you'd see Jesus pick out his 12 disciples, proving that he's a great teacher and a leader. And he tells everybody around him what a true follower of his will look like. They will obey God and do what God said. And then you get to chapter 4, where our story is found, and Jesus is teaching his disciples in parables, or like short earthly stories to prove a heavenly point. And you're going to notice in Mark 4 that Jesus talks about four parables. The parable of the sower, the parable of the lamp, the parable of the seed growing, the parable of the mustard seed. All four parables to prove two main points. God's word will grow God's kingdom by God's power in God's timing. All four parables to prove two points. God's word will grow God's kingdom by God's power in God's timing. In other words, the good news of Jesus is the seed. And when people receive that that gospel news and they obey it, they will become fruitful and productive. And God's kingdom will grow in God's timing by God's power. And Jesus' main thrust through these parables in Mark chapter 4 is that God is doing a work through his son Jesus that will never be stopped. Now that's the story of Mark up to this point. It's really important to the story. Jesus is authentically God's son, and through God's son, God will grow his kingdom by his power and in his timing. That leads us to the second point of our sermon, which is three greats. You're going to notice it. Great storm, great calm, and great fear. Now, you've heard me say this before. If you've been here very long, if you're new with us, we're really glad you're here. You'll probably hear me say this again if you come back. But when you read your Bible, you should always be looking for repeated words, repeated phrases, repeated themes. Over and over and over again, you should be looking for those things. Mark has... 35 times it uses one word. You should pay attention to that word, right? In this text, we notice a a similar thing. One word, the word great, is used three times. And it's as if Mark, in, in this whole passage, uses it to give us a break, to say, let's transition to the next great, and look at that. Let's look at the next great, and see what's going on there. And you'll notice the very first great we encounter is a great storm. We see this in verse 37. Now remember what Jesus has been doing most of the day in Mark 4. He's been teaching very large crowds. As evening rolls around, he tells his disciples something interesting. Let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Which is at night, he wanted to do this then, which was normally the calmest time of the day on this 
this sea. Now, if you know anything about the Sea of Galilee, it's a really interesting place. It was 700 feet below sea level. It is 700 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by very high mountains. And off to the northeast, Mount Hermon rises to 9,200 feet. So when you get the cold temperatures from the peaks flowing down to that area where the Sea of Galilee is, and it meets these very high temperatures rising from this this low, dark valley, what you get is very furious weather conditions. The Sea of Galilee is known for huge storms that just pop up out of nowhere, like a a mini squall or a mini hurricane that overtake boats in a moment's notice. That's what's happening in our scene in Mark chapter 4. Now, to give you an idea how ferocious this storm was, just remember who the disciples are, right? These guys are experienced fishermen. They know what they're doing on this Sea of Galilee. They've been on it many times. And many of them went to fish at night because it was the calmest time of the day. These guys knew this sea, and they knew what was going on, and they knew how to handle their boat. But in this moment, they panicked. They had no idea what to do. And in that storm, at that moment, the disciples find Jesus asleep. (laughs) Asleep. Again, just what are we seeing? Experienced fishermen knowing they're in trouble in full panic. You wouldn't think anybody would be asleep, but Jesus is. Proving that he is human, right? We're seeing this humanity of Jesus. Now, I marvel at people who are deep sleepers. My wife is a very deep sleeper. I've said before she could sleep through a hurricane. I've walked in late at night to her being dead asleep. And the next morning she goes, what time did you get in? I said, I don't know, 1230-ish, I think. Yeah, I'm really glad nobody's breaking into our home, (laughs) right? But her deep sleep reminds me once again that Jill is indeed more Christ-like than I am, right? She's a deep, deep sleeper. Those of you who know her would say yes and amen. Jesus is a really hard sleeper in this text. But unlike Jesus, notice the disciples. They're panicking. And they're actually accusing Jesus of something. Do you not care that we're dying? You ever had moments like that? I can tell you this, 2020 in Roseburg, Oregon was that moment. I heard more Christians ask if God cared than I ever had in all the years of ministry I've been involved More Christians wondered what they needed to do and how they needed to handle themselves in non-Christian ways than in any other year. It came on us suddenly, didn't it? Who would have thought? Maybe you've had those moments personally, the unexpected trial. The bad health diagnosis that you went in thinking, this isn't a big deal. And suddenly the doctor says, hey, this isn't just a cough. You've got lung cancer. Maybe a sudden death of a loved one. In our area, listen, we had hoped again that fire would not devastate things, but it is. Does it ever feel like to you that God is asleep at the wheel? Does it ever feel like that moment, God, do you you not care that we're dying here? Have you not paid attention? Do you not see the groans that we're going through here? How long, O Lord? Great storms, they happen. But then notice the great calm. Notice verse 39. Jesus gets up, 
at the disciples' rebuke and request and tells the storm to stop, and it does. You know what's interesting is in the original language, Jesus speaks to the storm like it's an old friend. He talks to it in a personal way. It's actually in, a, uh, in an interesting way where Jesus actually tells the storm in a personal way, you must stop and you have no choice. <laughs> it's almost as if as he speaks this out, I just can imagine what's going on in the storm's mind. Sure, creator, we'll do whatever you ask. <laughs> and then Jesus kind of says, hey, by the way, I'm not asking. Just stop. The language is be still and stay still, old friend. And suddenly everything is quiet. No more waves. No more water splashing over the boat. No, no more white knuckle grabbing of the sides of the boat. I mean, if you know anything about Peter, right? I mean, can you imagine what Peter is doing in this moment? Peter is freaking out. I mean, he is screaming for somebody, right? John is probably cowering near Peter going, where is Jesus who loves us, right? I mean, you know, just kind of, you know, I mean, I just see them panic in this moment. I would be somewhere probably leaning over the edge of the boat throwing up because I can't do that thing, right? I mean, just losing your mind. But notice what's happening in the seas and the winds. There's great calm. Just in a matter of two verses, Mark does something fascinating, doesn't he? He takes us to see Jesus' humanity where he's calmly sleeping. And then he suddenly reveals to us Jesus' divinity or his godness. Who tells the winds to stop and they obey. Friends, this should absolutely amaze us. The authority and the power of Jesus over nature. His ability to take an earthquake and pull the ground back together. Or just tell it to stop and completely mend and never look like anything ever happened. The power to tell a disease to quit, and it does. The power to take a lightning bolt and go, nope, not there, over here. That seems to be Mark's main point. This is uniquely the God-man. This is the Lord Christ. This is the Savior King. This is the only one who can take a tempestuous creation and bring calmness to it. He's the only one. And then notice great fear. This is in verse 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. It's interesting because you think this is backward, right? You'd have, you should have great fear. You know, then you have great calm, great storm, great fear, great calm. But that's how it happens. You've got great fear after. We, we know the disciples were scared of the storm. Jesus says this about them. But notice something interesting. That after Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples were afraid of Jesus. We could put it this way. They were exceedingly afraid and said to one another in their terrified fear, who in the world is this person that just told the sea to settle down? And it did. He makes me nervous. (laughs) See, the winds might have calmed and the disciples, but the disciples still had a brand new fear. And that fear was greater than the storm. 
Now just think about that for a moment. Just think, just process this. We all like a God that we can approach. We want one we can hang out with, one that we can call our friend. What do you do with this God? We like a God of our own imagination who is nice, kind, friendly, a little bit like Mr. Rogers that everybody wants to be their neighbor. He, we want him to be the greatest State Farm agent ever. <laughs> but a God who's more terrifying than the storm? R.C. Sproul put it well when he said this, In all their inventive creativity, the one thing human beings have never done is to invent a God who is more terrifying than the force they want to tame. Above all, human beings do not want a personal God who is holy, for nothing threatens sinful humanity more than the presence of the holy. Thus, no one would have invented the God of Christianity. But we do not have a category for someone who can speak to the waves and cause them to obey him. Such a one is in a class by himself. This one is so alien, so other, that there's no compartment for him. In a word, what the disciples experienced on the Sea of Galilee that night was the holiness of Christ. See, this otherness, this power, this holiness of Christ is what Mark wants our eyes drawn to. And he wants us to marvel at this power. Now you can see, you can see why this is way bigger than looking at this story and going, Jesus will calm my personal little storm. Something else is happening here that Mark is displaying to us and teaching to us. That's why we need to look at this story in the context of Mark chapter 4. Those last two parables that Mark gives before this story feed into this story. We can't miss it. And those last two parables are about the reality of Jesus' kingdom and the growth of that kingdom. Notice what Mark says about this in verse 26 and 27. He said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. In other words, what Mark says is the kingdom of God expands, it grows, it produces fruit, and the sower sleeps and doesn't know how it happened. He just gets up and he says, wow, look what God has done. Implied that the kingdom of God grows by the power of God, in the time frame of God, in, if you will, in secrecy at times, doing things that we would never know what God is doing. And then notice verses 30 and 31. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it's sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth, earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out our large, put out large branches so the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. In other words, the kingdom of God starts small, but becomes larger than anything else. Implied that the kingdom grows from being very small by the power of God, on the timetable of God, to become the size that God wants. And then, directly after those stories, those parables, comes the story of the storm. You have to ask yourself, why? Why, why, does, why, did, why did he do this this way? 
I mean, remember what Jesus said here. After telling the parables, Jesus said, hey, get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. And the moment he gets in the boat to go to the other side, notice something. Nature tries to stop the seed from moving forward. And what does the king of his kingdom say? Not so much. Peace be still. See, these stories in Mark are interesting. Mark did not put stories in chronological order. What Mark did was he picked stories and he put them in a place on purpose. In the context of Mark chapter 4, Mark is telling us something. So what is Mark telling us when we get to this storm story directly following these parables of this expanding, growing, powerful kingdom that will work and expand at God's time in God's and by God's power? Well, he's telling us first, we can see it clearly that Jesus has authority over heaven and earth. I mean, that's not hard to notice. He gets into a boat. Nature begins to resist him. And what does he do? He gets up and he says, stop. We're getting to the other side. You will not stop the Son of God from accomplishing what the Son of God gets here to do. Then when he, as soon as he gets to the other side, notice in Mark chapter 5, he's immediately confronted with a man who is filled with that wonderful demon called Legion. What's happening here? The gates of hell are trying to prevail, and the king, Son of God says, Nope, you need to be removed. Go. Go. In both stories, you begin to see something really powerful that Jesus has all authority in heaven and in earth, above the earth or below the earth, and all over the place. That's really obvious when you see it in its context. But the question is, why? Why does he have authority over heaven and earth? Why why does he have all authority in heaven and earth? Why does he have the ability to calm the storm and to deliver this demoniac? Why? Why? He uses his authority and power to ensure that his kingdom will never fail or falter and that it will always grow by his power and on his timetable. Now, again, you see what we're doing with the story, don't you? We're taking the story, putting it in the context and move, removing ourselves from it. This is not about Jesus calming your personal storm that you have going on primarily. It is about God accomplishing something that he promised to do in the parables which is advancing his kingdom, and nothing will ever stop it. And just think about this for this moment. When you think Mark 4, written to Roman Christians, and put this book in the historical moment, it was written to Roman Christians suffering under Nero. They were watching their own loved ones being burned at the stake. Some of their own children were being taken and put into the Colosseum to be devastated by lions. They were losing their livelihoods. What do you think they needed to hear? There is a God who has promised that his kingdom will never falter. Can't you imagine what they're asking? Will Jesus' kingdom continue to survive in the storm of Rome? Because everywhere I'm looking, they're killing us off. Wouldn't you think they needed to hear something? Will it continue to grow is probably their question. What Mark says is, well, what does Jesus' parables tell you? What does Jesus' authority over the calming of the sea tell you? What does Jesus' authority over that demoniac tell you? It tells you that, yes, it will continue. Yes, it will continue to grow, and nothing can stop it because it's done by God's power. You, You can almost hear Jesus asking the question through Mark to the Roman Christians, Hey, will you will you continue to be in fear? 
Will you continue to mistrust my care for you? But let's take it out of the twenty out of the first century and let's drop it right into twenty first century America. People wondering if God is asleep at the wheel while America struggles and goes into further decadence. Will secularism's rise and the seemingly pushing Christianity to the circumference stop Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and earth, from advancing his kingdom and growing his church? Well, the, the answer is no. Never. What, what do the parables tell you? What does the story tell you? What, what does history tell you? Can the gates of hell prevail against Christ's church? The answer is no, never. It can never do that. So you can hear Jesus speaking through Mark. And, and why do you fear? And friends, we had enough of it in 2020, didn't we? The question should be to Christians all over the places. So do you, do you doubt God's purposes to overcome evil tyrants and to overcome bad diagnoses and to move things forward for his purposes? You see the point. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I, I get into a book like this or a chapter like this, and I, be, I begin to immediately throw my personal storms into it. Jesus will stop the pain, and when he doesn't, I begin to doubt it. Jesus will stop the sorrow, or he won't allow bad things to happen. And when they do, what is he doing? But what if this story is about something completely different? What if the story is actually about Jesus getting to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to keep moving his kingdom forward. That's a completely different picture than him dealing with my little storm that I got going on in my world right now. And him getting to the other side, proving to us there is nothing that will stop him from advancing and moving forward like he promised to do in Mark chapter 4. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth to grow his kingdom. And according to Mark 4, he will surely do it. Nothing will stop him from it. The question you ask, and you're probably wrestling with at times, is, okay, but when? When did the disciples want the storm to stop? Now. And as soon as they noticed the storm was coming, and they went and found Jesus, what was he doing? Hey, he's sleeping. It's awfully helpful. You'd think that they'd probably walk into the stern and think, Jesus is standing up praying to God. He's going to command something or do something, or maybe he's going to make something happen. And they walk up and he's sleeping. Imagine the frustration. And do you ever wonder why? Does it ever feel like God is sleeping at the wheel, taking a power nap? Does it ever feel, wonder why God has not allowed revival to land in our land? Why is God delayed in his responses? Why, why does it seem like in our heartaches, it's like he doesn't act like he was supposed to act in Mark chapter 4? Well, it's because he's never in a hurry. But he's always on time. Douglas Wilson wrote this in a recent blog post I think is worthy of our consideration. Here's what he wrote. As Christopher Dawson once put it, the Christian church lives in the light of eternity and can afford to be patient. When we buy into our own timelines, the results are almost always 
in ideological and revolutionary impatience. You know all that zeal that we think we have? There's a thing called knowledge, biblical knowledge, that we should probably attach to it. We live in light of eternity. There is a king that has won and will continue to win. There's a king who has promised that his kingdom will never stop. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he will not stop growing his kingdom. That's the main part of the story of this storm story. Evil tyrants can't stop him. COVID-19 can't stop him. COVID-27 can't stop him. All the issues about the police can't stop him. A, A government moving up and down cannot stop him. The Christian church lives in the light of eternity and can afford to be patient. Let me show you one last thing in this story that I think will encourage you from it. The disciples, like all of us, even in the midst of these struggles, struggled with fear. Is God deaf to our cries? Does God care? And Jesus' response emphatically says, yes, he does care. See, what's fascinating in the story is they challenge Jesus' care for them because they're wondering, do you not care that we're going to die? Jesus gets up, stops the storm to prove to them, I do care about you. Not saying he's going to stop every storm. He's saying in the middle of storms, I care about you. He came because he cares. He came to stop the storms of God's wrath hanging over our lives. I mean, you you realize how amazing that news is that before Christ, you believing in Christ, if you're a child of God, the wrath of God is aimed at you. And if you were to die in that place without Christ, you would suffer underneath the wrath and the justice of God. But Christ came to stop that waves of falling upon you, those storms crashing against you. He came to calm the crashing waves of the destructive forces of your personal sin. You know what this means? It means that if you're a believer in Jesus, that he's given you the power to no longer be dominated by your sin. You don't have to keep living like you used to live. You're a brand new creation in Christ. The penalty has passed away. You're no longer under the judgment of God. And the power has been given you to no longer live in that same old sin. He came so that things like Romans 8 could be real. I mean, when you put the Savior, the King of Kings over the top of Romans 8, just just let this bathe your soul for a moment. When Paul wrote these words, if God is for us, well, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure... 
Are you sure? Are you sure? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, your Savior cares for you. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth to keep you eternally safe. Are you aware that the same power that calmed the storm is the same power that keeps you safe for all of eternity? That doesn't mean he's going to stop a, a, a fire from ravaging your home. That'd be great. Be wonderful. We'd love that. But it does mean he will stop eternal fires from taking your soul. And what an encouragement this would be for these Roman Christians who would hear this. Suffering under Nero, your God cares for your eternal soul. He will never let you be eternally damned. He is always with you. No matter how bad things will be, he is still moving his kingdom forward and he cares for you. And what an encouragement is for us. Our God is with us. Our God is for us. Our God does care for us. Our God will keep us eternally safe. Our God will grow his kingdom. And neither storms, nor demons, nor evil tyrants, nor secularism can stop God through Jesus with all the authority in heaven and earth from doing what he came to do. That's what he promised. He'll never stop. So as J.R. Edwards wrote, like the disciples, Mark's first readers may have thought God indifferent to their hardship and their suffering. This story assured them, as it assures us, that even seismic revolt against God's Son cannot swamp the boat in which he has gathered with his disciples. In the midst of their consternation, the authoritative word of Jesus that has muzzled rebel powers asked the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Christian, the authoritative word of Jesus asks you, why are you still afraid? Do you still have no faith? Your king has all authority in heaven and earth to care for you. Your king has all authority in heaven and earth to grow his kingdom no matter what may come. And he will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the bigness of this picture because it reveals to us how small we are. It also reveals how myopic we get, how self-focused we get. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for returning us once again to the grand purposes of God. To care for his people and to grow his kingdom. And Father, I pray for us. I, I know there's many of us, probably like myself, that at times have said, God, do you not care? 
Do you not hear? Why are you waiting? When will you work? And we fail to see that your grand purposes will never be stopped. So I pray for people like us. I pray that you would help us open our eyes to see greater purposes than ourselves. I pray for those going through real life storms right now. I pray that they would see and know your care in the midst of their storm. As the disciples, that they would turn to you and know and understand your great care proven by your life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. Father, would you rest our souls in your great authority over all things and the promise that you will surely accomplish everything you have promised to do. Help us to have a perspective of eternity that causes us to be patient. Help us to attach our zeal with knowledge that is biblical and godly. For your glory, not ours. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.